Well, hey, can we thank the worship team as uh, they head off for leading us so well in worship? That is our hope that Jesus was crucified for our sins but raised to life. Amen. And uh, listen, you guys are in, you guys have a special treat in store for you this morning. I get to introduce our guest preacher this morning, and his name is Brian White. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about Brian. Brian is the senior pastor at Harvest Bible Chapel in North Indy. That's Indianapolis. Um, it's not a great state, but it's a great church. And um, I am. <laughs> Good friends with Brian, and um, Brian White has also, for the last two years, been the leader of the Great Commission Collective, which is really the worldwide church planting network that we are a part of. He has been the um, CEO, leader of that, and Brian is an incredible preacher, an incredible leader, but more than that, um, Brian's just a great friend to me and a great mentor, and I just want to tell you that when there are things going on in my life or in my ministry, one of the first um, names on my phone that I pick up and I call is Brian. And he's already been a blessing to our church because of his influence on me personally. And I know that he's going to be a great blessing to all of you as he opens God's word with you this morning. So can we give him a Harvest Spring Lake welcome and welcome Pastor Brian White. Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. I just want to tell you how thankful I am for your church and for David and Kristen with Sen and for Cal and Mary, um, what great friends they've been to us. But I also just want to say thank you to you as a church. Your church is influencing churches all over the world. And I don't know if you know that, but uh, your leaders are regularly in different places helping churches to be strong, helping churches to be healthy, uh, leading the way and planting churches. And um, it's really a privilege. I've walked through this building a couple of times, but I've never been able to be here on a weekend. And so it's really a privilege for me to be able to open God's word with you. So if you have your Bible, turn it into it to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. Ephesians chapter 2. And I have to just be honest with you and tell you that I am a, a serious XM radio fan. All right? And so I think there's a couple different reasons for that. Uh, you know, people have uh, FM radio, AM radio, they listen to CDs, all those different things, MP3. But, but my whole deal is this. I actually get bored driving. I need more to concentrate on. Like, I need to multitask. And so, like, I get bored driving, and I want to pay attention to more than just driving. And everybody's like, that is such a bad idea. I know that, but I want to flip through the channels. And so as I'm flipping through the channels, I have my favorite channels, like uh, 80s on 8 or 90s on 9. That kind of tells you where I'm at age-wise, although I probably look like I should be listening to 70s on 7 or something like that. And... Um, you know, ESPN Radio, Y2 Country, Fox News, I love all those, but I was flipping through the channels the other night and I found, you ready for this? I found the Love Channel. Now, I'll just be honest, I was just flipping through honest. I don't normally go there and there was a song on that I liked and I found myself um, going back to that channel just to see what else is on the Love Channel. You ready for this? Here it is. This is what I heard. All we need is love. Love song, I will always love you, the power of love, love takes time. Can we just be honest with one another to say we don't need any more songs about love? Like we've got enough, like nobody needs to like put their pen to the paper again and write more. Like the Love Channel has got plenty to keep it busy for a while. But the fact of the matter is today somewhere in the world somebody's going to write a song about love. 
somebody's thinking about love today somewhere in the world. And here's why. Love is this human emotion. It's this experience that's kind of driving us through life. And everybody wants to be loved. I think it's amazing when somebody says to someone, I love you, uh, there's an immediate thing in our heart that's like, yes, everybody wants to be loved. But according to today's practice of relationships, love seems to be fickle and fleeting. As a pastor, as I counsel, it's not uncommon for someone to be sitting in my office and to look at their loved one and say, I just don't love you anymore. And as much as we want to be loved, I can think of very few things that are as destructive as professing love, as communicating that I love you, and then not following through. And we live in a world that because love is fleeting and fickle in so many ways, people today, if you're like, listen, I love you, they're like, prove it. Prove it. And in that world of skepticism, we are proclaiming as Christians, God loves you. And it shouldn't shock us that people are like, prove it. This morning what I want to do is I want to encourage you personally with the love of God. I also want to equip you to help others see the proof of that love. Would you write this down? Here's our main idea for the morning. God loves you enough. God loves you enough to change you completely. All the way from the inside out to change everything about you. I believe God loves you enough to take your biggest problem and change it. God loves you enough to change you completely so you and I can live as those who have been radically and completely changed. Now I believe Ephesians chapter 2, as Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is one of the most theologically rich and practically significant chapters of the Bible. What he's doing at the beginning of Ephesians is just helping believers know, here's who you are in Christ. In chapter 1, here's all the blessings that are yours in Christ. But then he gets to chapter 2, and chapter 2 is one giant rehearsal of the gospel. Here's what I think you're going to see today. That God loves you enough to change you completely, and God loves you enough to take your biggest need, my biggest need, that we are spiritually dead and change it. That's what we're going to see. Let's give our time to the Lord, shall we, before we jump into God's word. Father, thanks for today. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, it's in your word that you're revealing yourself. It's in your word that you're revealing the gospel. It's in the word that you're revealing your heart for us. And God, I believe that we'll see all that today. You tell us in your word that your Holy Spirit will guide us to truth. And God, we would just believe that nothing of eternal value is going to happen in this time unless your Holy Spirit is moving. And so would you guide us to the truth? Would you convict our hearts to believe it? And would you cause us to be different than when we came? May we be more and more conformed into the image of your great son, Jesus. And Jesus, we exalt your name. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I don't want to surprise you with what I'm going to do in this message. We're literally just going to walk verse by verse, word by word, phrase by phrase through this. And I want to prove to you, I want to encourage you with the deep, deep abiding love of God for you. How can you remember, how can you bring to memory and how can you show it to others that God loves you so much? First of all, write this down, consider your past. Consider the past. Paul is writing to believers, he's writing to those who have turned their life over by faith to Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me that in the day and age we live in where there's so much conversation about how we must have so much confidence and self-esteem as believers that Paul doesn't actually start there. He actually goes in the opposite direction. I want you to consider your past. You were defined by sin. Look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now what you have in verse 1 is really just the definition of our condition. That we're dead in trespasses and sin. And really in verse 1, there's two words that jump out that we need to have uh, defined. Ready? Here's the first one. The word is sin. A sin, I think just a general definition would be this. Doing what is wrong based on what God says is right. Okay, you're like, did you get that out of a theology book? No, I just think it's like a, it's like a biblical normal answer. Ready? It's, it's doing what is wrong based on what God says is right. When God sets a standard, that's the standard of truth. That's the standard of right. And he says, listen, if you don't meet the standard, if you violate the standard, that's, he calls it sin. But then there's a second word, one that we use more in our culture, this idea of trespass. What is a trespass? If somebody's trespassing on property, what does that mean? A very simple definition is this. You're treading on ground that doesn't belong to you. I remember as a kid, right across the street from our house, there was this old Baptist church, and they had this old Christian school that had shut down. And behind the church building was this awesome old gymnasium. Okay, and, and when the school shut down, they just left all the basketballs in there, they left all the uniforms in there, and the gyms just closed up. Well, like as a little kid, like just say like I'm like 11... Like, that, that is like a treasure trove just waiting for to be found, right? Okay, and here's the thing. Like, you could take the doors of that old gym and kind of pry them open, and you could slip through. Uh, clearly, that's not happening anymore. But, um, <laughs> but you could kind of slip through, and, and, like, you put on the old jerseys. That's just nasty, man. How long it have been since those have been cleaned? And, 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 like, we'd put those jerseys on, and we'd play basketball when nobody was around. And you know what we were doing? We were treading on ground that doesn't belong to us. And I still remember the day we were in there and somebody jerked open the door who worked for the church and nobody had to tell us it was time to leave. Because there's something in us that tells us when we're treading on ground that doesn't belong to us, we know that. My wife and I were in a neighborhood not too long ago looking at some houses that were being built. And right behind these beautiful homes, there was kind of a, a lake. And then behind that was a beautiful set of woods and about every 30 yards in the woods, a sign that says, no trespassing. Gun range. 
Could you imagine? I have, I have to say I don't think anybody's trespassing on that ground. Right? Like nobody's like, oh, well, maybe I'll make it in these 30 yards, right? Because some ground that you trespass on is more dangerous than others. Consider the ground that we trespass on. Revelation 1.18 says this, excuse me, Romans 1.18 says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's demonstrated, it's shown against every single person who is ungodly or unrighteous as they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know what those two words mean? Ungodly means we don't let God have his rightful place. We trespass on his glory. Unrighteous means we sin. This is the ground we're treading on. We're spiritually dead because in our sin, we are trespassing on God's glory. And God's just really clear in the word of God how he feels about that. He says, listen, when we're like, hey, God, just kind of move over a little bit. I'm going to be religious and I'm, I'm going to be in it with you. Just scoot over a little bit. It will be us together in this thing. God's like, listen, I will not share my glory with another. And what Paul says in verse 1 is we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So some people are like, well, Brian, what do you do with the fact that like, people have like spiritual longings or they do good stuff? I'm not saying that if people don't have spiritual longings. The Bible actually says that God writes it in the heart of man to know him. There's going to be a spiritual longing in people. There are going to be things that we do that are good by man's standards. What I'm telling you is this. The spiritual longings and all the good stuff by man's standard will never measure up to a place where it will change our spiritual condition. And in verse 1, you have this definition of condition. But here in verse 2, you have the description of it. He kind of fleshes it out. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Let's just stop there for a second. I want you to note here that Paul is saying this in the past tense. In this description of our condition, he's writing to believers and he's saying, listen, this is what you were walking in. Can I just suggest to you that every single person who walks in the face of the planet, in verse 1, it is either present tense, they are dead in sin and trespasses, or those were the things in which they once walked. It's present tense for some in this room, and it's past tense for some in this room. Which is it for you? You see him then describe this condition in which you once walked, and then he says following two things. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Okay, let's go with the first one. Ready? Following the course of this world. What does that mean? I believe there's a natural flow to life without God. I believe there's a natural flow and a way that life works. And, and sometimes we make comments like this. Well, I know how that's going to end. You ever said that? You see like the marriage that's in turmoil and they won't take any advice or counsel. And you're like, well, I, I know how that's going to go. The child who continues to rebel and it doesn't matter how many times you press in on them. And you're like, I, I, I pretty much know how that's going to end. You know what you're acknowledging right there? You're acknowledging that there is a course of this world. For people who fall into addiction and they're like, no, 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 I'm not an alcoholic. No, I'm not addicted to those substances. No, I'm not that. And you begin to see just them following a course. That's what we're acknowledging. That there is this natural way of life without God. And you know what? It leads to a separation from God. The second thing it says we're following is this. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All right, this is a little bit more straightforward, right? Okay, look at it here. Okay, uh, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Help me out. 
That's Satan. So I just want to make sure I got it right, Paul. What you're saying is this, that there are people who are following Satan. That seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, that just seems a little harsh, really. Except Satan was once an angel of light. And what was his sin? Hey, God, move over. I'd like to be on the throne with you. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what all of us have done? Isn't that what everybody does? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of the Lord. You see, when we're dead in sin and trespasses, we're following the course of the world. We're walking with those who are dead in trespasses, and we're following Satan's example. So you might be here and you're like, well, Brian, I don't particularly like that description of me. I don't think that's correct. I kind of feel like you're singling me out. Well, then verse 3 is really important for you because verse 3 talks about the scope of this condition. And here's the scope of the condition. Sin defines and devastates everyone. Look at verse 3. We're following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air, this spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So if this morning you're like, listen, I feel like you're singling me out and saying I'm following Satan, I just want you to look around for a second. I literally want you to look around. Just look around for a minute. Everybody look at the person next to you. You're like, yeah, that person for sure is following Satan. Don't, don't do that. All right, that's not a good idea at all. Like, all right, don't, don't be accusing at this part of the message, all right? Um, but here's the thing, every single person in this room, every single person in this room is or has been defined by verse 1 through 3. Among whom we all once lived. You're not alone in the description. So how can you really know if this is present tense or past tense? I have people come in my office and they say to me, Brian, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. How will I know? Okay, well, this verse actually helps us with that. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's what I would ask you. Are you living life completely according to your desires? Are you relying solely on your own intellect and wisdom? And are your passions driving you forward to what you want? If that's true, there's reason to believe that verse 1 through 3 is not past tense. Verse 1 through 3 for you is present tense. Is it possible that you have given your life to Jesus Christ by faith? And sometimes it looks like verse 3. Yes, Yes, there are times that look wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, positionally righteous in him, positionally holy, our practice doesn't seem to match. I believe that's the thing about the Christian life. We're getting the privilege every day of position and practice matching, and sometimes it doesn't. But here's what I'm more fearful of. I'm more fearful of the fact that the Bible says that on the day of the Lord, some will look at him and say, I even preached in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't think we're serious enough to say, wait a minute, is verse 1 through 3 your current definition or your past definition? And at this point, you might be like, this is seriously the most depressing guest speaker we've ever had. <laughs> You're like, I thought you were actually going to encourage us with God's love. 
But praise God for verse 4. Here's where it begins to get really, really awesome. In the stark darkness of verses 1 through 3, if the Bible ended there, we would all be lost. Consider the change. Verse 1 through 3, consider your past. Consider that you were defined by sin. And then if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, consider the change. You're defined by grace. Look at verse 4. But I love in the language how it just turns. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God loves you enough to change you completely. And here's how it becomes, becomes so visible to us. When you consider your past, dead in sin, hostile to God, at conflict with God, can't do anything about it, following the course of this world, walking away from God, God loved you enough to change that. You're like, Brian, prove it. Okay, verse 4 shows us that the author of any of this change is God. But God, being rich in mercy, in spite of verses 1 through 3, God chose to change the situation. And a logical question would be, why? Because he thought you were really nice. Because he thought you could pull, really pull off some awesome stuff for the kingdom. Is that what it is? What does the verse say? But God chose to change you because you're awesome. Is that what it says? What does it say? But God being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved. Here's the thing. Why did God choose to do this? Because it's in the character of God to do it. God is merciful, loving, and gracious. And I love the fact that he's like he's rich in mercy. Some people are like, Brian, you have no idea the sin account that I have worked up. No, I do not. But I know the richness of our God who can never outspend it in his mercy. And some of you are like, you know what, God's just some old man up in heaven waiting to crush you. Can I just tell you for certain, based on verse 4, God is not some old man of the universe waiting in heaven to crush you. He is the God who is merciful and gracious and loving and he wants to save you. Why does he have this kind of mercy? But God being rich in mercy, what is the, where does the mercy come from? What's prompting the mercy? Look at verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. I believe it's important that that's past tense. But God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. This is how we know what love is, that Christ would lay down his life for his brothers, 1 John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have eternal life, John 3.16. All of those verses point to this. This was not God waking up one day and being like, I will love you if you love me. It is not God looking through the portal of time and being like, who's going who's gonna to love me? I'll love them in return. It could never happen that way. It's the love of God extended towards you that allows your response to him. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, this is the gospel. This is the good news. God takes sinners who are dead in sin, and he makes them alive. Look at what it says. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 1 through 3, he made us alive together with Christ. God takes sinners who are dead in sin and makes them alive in Christ. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. How does he do this? Jesus came to earth and he took all of your sin and all of my sin and paid for it on the cross. Let me say that again. He takes all of your sin. And all of my sin and pays for it at the cross. And now those who are dead can be made alive by faith. Romans 6.23 makes it clear the wages of sin is death, but the rightful payment of sin is death. And Jesus took my death and your death. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Because it brings glory to him and to his father. Verse 5 shows us the definition of change. We're made alive together with Christ. Even when we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. Note here that the impetus is him, not us. And the action is his and not ours. So like I think about it, a great way to think about this whole concept is this. When you think about salvation, typically people are going to think about two different things. They're going to think about CPR. Like there's enough, like I'm still kind of alive. I'm like sort of dead. And I'm kind of alive. And, and so God kind of breathes into me and kind of wakes up the good. Like CPR bangs on my chest a little bit. Or there's like, like you're Frankenstein. Like Frankenstein, remember that whole thing? Like I remember like the, the horror movies when I was younger, like you got like Dracula and Frankenstein. And like I remember somebody explaining to me the Frankenstein. Okay, it's basically like this dead thing that they like put together and like bolt his head together. Frankenstein always has those bolts, right? Okay, and they bolt his head together and he's dead. And then suddenly he's shocked by lightning and made alive. What is dead becomes alive, which is what Romans is talking about. And Ephesians is talking about in regards to us. You see, here's the danger of spiritual CPR for salvation. Number one, it's not biblical. Number two, it will lead you to think that you are something that you're not. Number three, it will lead you to a lower view of God than he actually is. This is a God who is more powerful than we could ever imagine and who loves us more deeply than we could ever think. Verse Five, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. God shows us grace. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Punishment, hell. Grace is giving us what we by no means deserve. A life in Christ. Living as a believer is coming to understand and then respond to the great fact that we could not secure the change. We didn't do anything to get the change. We didn't deserve the change. God did this because he is gracious and merciful and he deeply, deeply, deeply loves us. That leads to verse 6 and 7 which show us the privilege of our change. By grace we've been saved and that means we've been raised up with him. 
and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean? In chapter 1, he's talked very plainly about the privileges that are ours in Christ. In fact, in chapter 1, it says over and over and over again, you have like the privilege of adoption in him. You have redemption in him. You have the Holy Spirit deposit guaranteeing what is to come because of him. And chapter 1 makes it very clear. You have all of these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms in Christ. In other words, when you come to Christ, when you're made alive, the righteousness of Christ is wrapped around you. And you have all of the blessings of sonship in him. What that also means is this, an important application of this verse, that we are raised up with him and seated with him, is this, that it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. That my life has gone away, I'm buried with him, and I'm raised to walk in a newness of life. And so here's what that means, listen, Jesus didn't give all of himself to only get part of you. The idea that he would make us alive and be like, okay, go on by yourself, you're good. Is not biblical. There's a life here to be lived. And that life is this. We're seated with him in the heavenly places and then keep going. So that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that when you see him, you will be like him. For those who put their faith in Christ... When you see Jesus, you will be like him. But Romans 8.29 says this, that day by day by day by day by day, we are being conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus. You know what that means? That means salvation, being made alive, is not just fire insurance. It's how to live life. So just illustrate the contrast. Verse 1 through 3, dead. Following the course of this world, following passions, desires, earthly wisdom, separated from God. Verse 4 through 7 so far. Alive, given mercy, blessing, adoption, assurance, which describes you. And which do you want to describe you? Like by the time I get to this point in the chapter, I'm like, why is anybody still dead? If there's this God who created everything, who loves so deeply and is so gracious and so merciful to take what is dead, to take our biggest problem and change it, why is anybody still dead? And I believe verse 8 and verse 9 are here to bring an absolute clarity to the issue. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved... Underline this. Through what? Faith. There's a really simple answer to the question, why are some still dead? They've never put their faith in Christ. You must take hold of, by faith, what Christ has done. I believe that salvation is by God's grace alone... Through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And there's absolute clarity. Like lots of other religions say I have to work for it. Like some people were like, well, do I have to give a tithe? Do I have to be baptized? Baptism is a point of obedience for those who have put their faith in Christ. Tithing is a natural point of obedience that we should give back to the Lord what he's given to us. But neither one of those are saving in nature. Wouldn't you agree? Like there should be like an amen or something right there. 
right? So I want to get this right. I was dead, can't do anything to change it. God loves me enough, and I don't then have to earn it. I have to put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess him, you will be saved, Romans 10, 13. I believe verse 8 and verse 9 are here to emphasize the point and bring as much clarity as possible to this salvation. And this salvation is by God's grace alone and is received through faith alone. Keep looking. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why would God give this gift? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Not as a result of works so that no one would boast. The clarity of our change. Here's where it finishes. It just doesn't leave us there. There's the result of this. For we are his workmanship. We live for God's glory. Those who have been made alive live for his glory. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The result is this. You are made a trophy of God's grace with a purpose to walk in Christ and with Christ and live for Christ for the rest of your days. Colossians 3 talks about putting off the old and putting on the new. We talk about walking with Christ. We talk about working for Christ. Listen, in a nutshell, here's what I would tell you. Love changes it all. Love changes it all. It makes me alive. It changes me. And it even gives me purpose. God loves you enough to change you completely. And because of that, you can live radically and completely changed. How do you respond to this? Can I just give you six words of response? Here's the first one. Like reading through this chapter, seeing God's love in this way, my first response is humility. Oh, you mean it isn't about me? You mean the whole story isn't about me? No, it's not. Today I recognize that God, you are God, and everything I am, it's because of you. Humility. I think the second response I would give you is this. Gratitude. Oh, my word. Dead in sin. That's really my definition. And you love me. Prove it. I sent my son to the cross to take your biggest need and change it. What's your response to that? It should humble us. And it should make us grateful. When was the last time you just said in the quietness of your heart, thank you, Jesus? Like, I know what you've done. I've, I, I've been raised in the church my whole life. I've heard about the crucifixion and the resurrection. When was the last time you said thank you? A third one is worship. Don Whitney in his book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, defines worship this way. Focusing on God and responding to him in spirit and truth. So here's what that is. Today, God, I see your mercy, your love, your grace, and your sovereignty, and I respond to you. I think it also means this. Responding in faith is worship. And you might be here this morning, and you might have been in church thousands of times, 
when you really look at your life, it's still defined by verses one through three. Then can I just tell you for certain based on verse four and the verses that follow that God deeply, deeply, deeply loves you. And today you can by faith take hold of Christ's sacrifice for you and you can be in a relationship with God himself and you can begin responding to the God who is not waiting in heaven to crush you. He's done everything necessary to save you. Listen, if that's you this morning, don't leave this room without talking to somebody and turning your heart over by faith to God. Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. Jesus, I believe you went and died on a cross for me. Jesus, I believe that your sacrifice is the only way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And whoever puts their faith in him will be saved. Today, that may be you. For Christians, so many of you in this room, there's three other words that I would tell you. Confidence. Confidence. Assurance of salvation. This is a work of God that he does. And he doesn't just scrub it out later. You can never be pried from the hand of God. Not only confidence in salvation, but how about confidence in life? If God can change your biggest issue, don't you think he can handle that thing you're facing right now? If he loves you enough to change you completely, do you believe that he's loving you enough to hold you through the season of trial you might be in? Do you believe that he is loving you enough to hold you in the season of question that you're in? There's a confidence that comes when we look at the power and love of God on display. Two more words. Purpose. Purpose, and here's the last one, mission. I think they go together. You see, when I see the gospel in such vivid color, here's what I find. It's not about me. I'm so thankful that you would save me. I want to respond to you, and I'm confident, God, of your love and your power. And so it is not my purpose. It is yours. And your purpose, God, your purpose, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And I will take up your mission so that more people will be defined by this. When I think of all those love songs on the radio, I think of one other love song that I remember hearing when I was little. Do you remember the words? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And then there are these words. Do you remember? Yes, help me, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And the world would say, prove it. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. Let's pray together. So my goals this morning were to encourage you in the love of Christ. If you're in this room and you're a believer, I pray that by the Spirit of God you are encouraged. But maybe now is the time to simply say, God, thank you. Just in the quietness of your heart. I want to speak to those in this room this morning very quickly. That verse 1 through 3 is not past tense for you, it's present tense. Can I just tell you that today can be the day of the greatest change in your life. Even while I'm talking, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I believe you are who the Bible says you are. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you came to a cross and you died and you paid for all my sins. 
I believe there's no other way to salvation but through you, and I'm putting my faith in you today. Jesus, you have my entire life. Even while I'm talking, you can pray that in the quietness of your heart. Jesus, I believe you died on a cross. I believe you rose again, and I can have eternal life because you've conquered sin and death. And if you're like, you know what, I want to know more about that. At the end of the service, there's going to be friends right here at the front that you can talk to but I want you to know that God loves you enough to change you completely and that can happen today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your deep, deep love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we profess and we confess our deep, deep need for you. We need you in every part of our life and we need to honor you in every part of it. Thank you for taking the cross Thank you for paying for salvation. Thank you for saving me. God, thank you for your grace and mercy. We worship you even now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Will you stand and worship with us?